there was only one franchise I would have ever contemplated buying, the San Diego Clippers. I'm looking at it like I look at other investments, as something over the long term will be enormously valuable. And I mean this sincerely. If somebody offered me $30 million for the San Diego franchise, I wouldn't sell it. Because I think ultimately one day it will be worth that. That's Donald Sterling in 1981, right after he bought his basketball team, the San Diego Clippers. The sale that started this whole thing in motion. But Donald Sterling's purchase of the Clippers never would have happened were it not for a different NBA sale two years earlier. Jerry Buss paid $68 million for the forum, and look what comes with it. The pro basketball Lakers and professional hockey's kings. Because what many people don't know is that before giving Los Angeles its worst basketball team, Donald Sterling helped give it its best. This is episode two, the opposite of Showtime. In June of 1979, a man named Jerry Buss stood on the brink of making one of his wildest dreams come true. Buss was a self-made guy, a kid from rural Wyoming with a Ph.D. in chemistry who ended up making his money in L.A. real estate. But what Jerry Buss really loved was sports, and he'd had his heart set on the Los Angeles Lakers for years. The owner of the team, Jack Kent Cook was going through a messy, expensive divorce that was forcing him to sell the team. Buss and a group of investors made an offer, and Cook accepted. But at the very last minute, Buss ran into trouble. Sure enough, just a few days before the schedule closing, Buss calls Cook and asks him for an extension, and Cook tells him to pound sand. Alan Rothenberg was Jack Kent Cook's lawyer. The clock was ticking, and Buss was running out of options. One of his investors had backed out, and he needed cash. To the extent that Jerry had the wealth, it was all tied up in these complex real estate limited partnerships, but they didn't have cash. And that's when Jerry Buss, the man who would eventually change the face of the NBA, and sports, and Los Angeles, made a desperate phone call. Just hours before the closing deadline, the phone rang at Donald Sterling's Beverly Hills mansion. It was one o'clock in the morning. On the other end of the phone was Jerry Buss. The two men weren't necessarily close, but the circle of rich real estate guys in L.A. in the late 70s was only so big. Like Buss, Donald Sterling was a self-made man from humble beginnings. Donald was a kid from Boyle Heights, one of East L.A.'s poorest neighborhoods. Sterling had used the money he'd made as a personal injury lawyer to get into real estate. But unlike Buss, who bought and sold, bought and sold, tying his money up in loans and mortgages... Donald had, you know, never sold anything. He just kept collecting his rents, and so the cash was rolling in. This is what it came down to. The highly leveraged deal guy calling the cash-rich landlord to bail him out. Only true to form, Donald didn't want to be a part of the deal. He wanted to make a deal. He wanted to buy some of Jerry's real estate holdings. Shelley Sterling remembers Jerry Buss came over to their house just hours after that middle-of-the-night phone call, and the two men went to the bank. Eight o'clock in the morning, he comes to the door, and uh, I don't even think the bank was open. <laughs> well, those are certainly not Donald Sterling hours. No. <laughs> or my hours. Then they went to Santa Monica, 
so Donald could pick out 11 of Jerry's buildings to buy. We bought a lot of the buildings from Jerry in exchange for the money that Don had lent them. Basically, Donald was Jerry's banker. This moment is not one that most Angelinos would expect. The public impression of Jerry was he was a high liver. They thought he was rich as could be. And the way Donald operated, they figured this guy couldn't rub two nickels together. This difference between the two, hold on to every cent versus spend every cent, would shape basketball in Los Angeles for decades. In 1979, after owning a pro tennis team, Buzz purchased the Lakers, the L.A. Kings, the Forum, and a large ranch from Jack Kent Cook for $67.5 million. And why did he make the investment? It's as simple as the song that is played after every Laker home victory. I loved L.A. I mean, uh, the city and myself were soulmates. And suddenly, thanks to Donald Sterling... All eyes in Los Angeles were on Jerry Buss. Stand by tape eight, two and out. Sports Look, the show that goes beyond the scores and headlines of the sports world. Roy Firestone was the sports interviewer of the day. The host of Sports Look, Roy Firestone, award-winning journalist. Named in Sports Illustrated. Roy was there the day that Jerry Buss became the new owner of the Los Angeles Lakers. I interviewed Buss the first day. He looked at me and he said... I can't believe what a fan I am of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and I'm going to be the owner. And first thing I'm going to want to get is Kareem's autograph. I still vividly remember he had the open wing shirt with the jewels, and he wore blue jeans. Blue jeans and cowboy boots, and a Brioni sports coat that cost thousands of dollars. The perfect embodiment of Wyoming cowboy and L.A. hustle. Well, I grew up in a town of 2,000 people, so since the forum seats 17,500, I was very excited. Everybody left the forum to go home that night. I lighted a cigarette in the middle of the basketball court, and I thought, wow, I've really arrived. (laughs) Jerry Buss loved the Lakers. He loved the NBA. But it wasn't the league it is now in those days. This was a league that was in peril. The ratings were in the toilet. To give you an idea how lowercase the NBA was, 79... I remember vividly the NBA Finals on tape delay. Tape delay in Los Angeles. They play it at 11 o'clock. This is the NBA Finals. Now you think the billion-dollar packages they have with ESPN and ABC? Well, it was a different world 40 years ago. The NBA was such a lowercase league. That was all about to change. The Los Angeles Lakers select Urban Magic Johnson, Michigan State, 6'8", 200 pounds. The Lakers had just taken a flashy point guard named Magic Johnson with the number one pick in the 1979 draft. And that first year, Jerry, Magic, and the Lakers won a championship. There it is. It's over. And the most valuable player is Magic Johnson. 42 points, 15 rebounds, and 7 assists. Number one owner number one team. (laughs) Jerry Buss and Magic Johnson formed an instant and lasting bond the kind of player-owner bond rarely seen in sports. Magic once told me he'd get up on Saturday mornings and go over to Jerry's house, and then they'd drive together to USC football games so Jerry could watch his alma mater. It was more than a friendship. They became family. They genuinely loved each other. But Jerry also seemed to understand that investing in that relationship, in all relationships, would pay off. 
Jerry Buss looked at his city and his team and saw something nobody else saw. He saw a show. Fast-paced, dazzling magic show. Showtime. Showtime. That became the expression. At the Forum, Buss created the ultimate experience. He hired a live band, set the lighting to this perfect shade of gold, and introduced the Laker girls. Ladies and gentlemen, here they are for your halftime entertainment, the Laker girls. Their sizzling dance routines became as much a part of the show as Magic Johnson's no-look passes or Chick Hearn's famous calls on the radio. 93 to 70. This game's in the Admiral refrigerator. The door is closed. The light's out. Butter's getting hard. The eggs are cooling, and the jello is jiggling. Jerome Stanley and Claire Rothman both worked for the Lakers in the early days. He invented something called the Senate seats. Like, let's charge more for these seats, but let's give them more. We made them unique because you had waitress service, and you could have libation, and you could have food. In sports today, that doesn't sound like, that just sounds like, you know, a milk and cookies idea. But Jerry created that idea. It must have been quite a thing for Donald Sterling to watch the guy that he bailed out become an overnight success and the coolest guy in town. You know one of the biggest status symbols you could have was a gold satin Laker jacket. And you snap, 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 and you wanted that gold jacket. You had that gold jacket on, it was like, he must be friends of Dr. Buss. The Lakers were so cool, they even have one of the hottest clubs in L.A. inside their arena. It was so exciting to be there. The Forum Club was the place to be seen. Think of it like the West Coast version of Studio 54. Rock stars, rappers, music legends. If it wasn't Reggie Jackson, it was Michael Jackson. I don't think I've ever met anybody who cared less about sports than Michael Jackson. And there's Jerry Buss with his arm around MJ. At the Forum Club... There was plenty of alcohol, plenty of enjoying oneself, plenty of things you didn't go home and tell your wife about. You'd find people that had offices in the forum that would still be making use of offices during Laker games. You know, people use the copiers for a lot of things in those days. Such as? I, you know, it was just a very high-flying time. We had a lot of fun. And I'm sure there was a lot of stuff running around up people's noses in that club, too. I can't prove it, but let's just say the magic juice was everywhere. One of the guys who made regular appearances at the Forum, trying to get as close to Showtime as he could, was Donald Sterling. It wasn't like, here comes Donald Sterling. He was just a guy named Donald Sterling. I remember he used to have that open-ended jacket with the jewelry, and it was really something out of Studio 54. This was L.A. in the 1980s. It was every bit as decadent as Wall Street, without the stuffy suits and ties. The only accessory that really mattered for these guys was the woman on your arm. The younger and hotter she was, the better. And guys like Jerry Buss and Donald Sterling loved the validation that came from the company of young women. It didn't matter to Donald that he was married. In fact, Jerry Buss's longtime friend and PR guy, Bob Steiner, told me about Donald using his own wife as a decoy. My wife and I were invited to this party. It was a restaurant on Melrose. We went in, and Shelly came up to my wife and said, there's somebody I want you to meet, and walked her off. 
And Don said, I had her do that so you could meet the girls at the bar. This was a world shaped by men's fantasies. And that's what attracted Donald Sterling. I think that Don looked at Jerry and thought, well, maybe if I follow that roadmap, the same things will happen to me. It's not hard to understand why Donald would have looked in the mirror and wondered why he shouldn't have what Bus had. Bus wasn't Hollywood leading man handsome either. They were both middle-aged men, the kind whose boyish handsomeness fades quickly with adulthood. Who grasp at comb-overs and hair pieces and dye jobs that don't convince anyone. He was just as rich. No, wait, he was richer. He was better at the real estate game. And so Donald tried to follow Jerry's lead. One time, he did ask me to, to get him a publicity man who could do for him what I did for Jerry Buss. And I said, well, Donald, buy the Lakers, <laughs> and you can get that kind of publicity. Of course, Donald couldn't buy the Lakers. So in 1981, he did the next best thing. We were very good friends with Jerry Buss, and we used to go to the Laker games all the time. Jerry was always talking, oh, you should buy a team, you should get a team. And... Um, I guess we were nuts. (laughs) I don't know why. It was just something I guess every man would love to do. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. A change in ownership in the NBA this past week. Irv Levin sold the San Diego Clippers to Los Angeles attorney Donald Sterling for $13.5 million. When Donald Sterling bought the Clippers in 1981, the team was struggling. The Clippers had recently rebranded from the Buffalo Braves and moved to San Diego. But things weren't going well. They were a last-place team looking for a savior. And everyone was hoping that Donald Sterling could do for the Clippers what Jerry Buss had done for the Lakers. I'm really prepared to do whatever is necessary to bring to San Diego a contender, a respectable team. On opening night of the 1981 season, everyone in San Diego finally got a good look at their new owner in action. 
I was on the bench with, with Coach Silas and Bill Westfall and our team, and we were not favored to win the game. Pete Babcock was an assistant coach for the San Diego Clippers at the time. He'd go on to become the general manager. He remembers Donald Sterling during that first game. And he was sitting courtside across from us at midcourt. You know, he was excited about the game and he was into it. And as the game progresses, his, his suit jacket comes off and then pretty soon his tie's loosened and he's excited and he's drinking wine and having a great time and, you know, enjoying the game. Late in the fourth quarter, the Clippers led by four points. And it looked like they were actually going to start their season off with a win. And then all of a sudden, one of the teams is shooting a free throw at the other end of the floor. And he came running across the middle of the court. The, the game was going on. He ran across the middle of the court and jumped into Paul Silas's arms. That would be head coach Paul Silas. You know, and, and Silas didn't know what to do. I mean, you know, he was like dumbfounded. He was like, what's going on? You know, it's like... We were all just literally dumbfounded. We didn't, nobody knew what to do. I love my team. I live and die sometimes with every basket, especially towards the end of the game. At the outset, Donald Sterling seemed genuinely enthusiastic, even if the ways he expressed it were a little strange. This is a guy who put up billboards all over San Diego to advertise his new team. But they were all plastered with pictures of himself. But that enthusiasm quickly soured. As that first season wore on and the Clippers started piling up losses, it became pretty obvious that Donald Sterling was not the savior San Diego had been waiting for. The Sterlings didn't even move to San Diego. They stayed in L.A. And we would drive to San Diego, like, sometimes twice a week, sometimes stay there for a few days. Donald wasn't there to roll up his sleeves and turn his team around. He wasn't there to rebuild. He was there for whatever money, perks, and attention he could get for himself by belonging to this very exclusive club of NBA owners. And he wasn't going to invest a single cent more than he needed to. I remember he said something about he had a friend who had a sporting goods store in L.A., and every time Don Sterling would drive down to our games, our home games, he could just bring a box of tape in the trunk of his car, and it would save his money. I remember one time Donald Sterling asked the coach of the Clippers why he had to pay for the players' socks. Can't they get their own socks? And you know, trying to explain to them, we go through a box of tape every day. Well, can't we reuse the tape? It was always about trying to save money. It's all about, I don't have to pay, make other people pay. You got the feeling that he was just didn't understand the business, was naive about it, or maybe he knew exactly how things operated and was just trying to find a way to save his money. You know, I guess when you're the newest one to buy a team, it's a lot harder because it's like the child that's new in the school. So um, it was a little difficult because we didn't really know much about anything. But these weren't your average growing pains. And they didn't stop with socks and athletic tape. Soon, Donald Sterling was blatantly disregarding the NBA's code of conduct. Toward the end of the first season, the team was considering acquiring a top player, someone who might actually help the team win games. But Sterling started to openly muse, publicly, about whether that was a good idea. Wouldn't winning hurt their draft chances? Based upon a rocky start and the number of games we lost, if we play as hard as we can, the probabilities are that we'll end up at a certain point, and that point will enable us to draft a first-round, number-one draft choice in America. 
McDonald was straight up suggesting they lose games to get a better draft pick, which was a huge no-no. Tanking is one of the NBA's, actually one of the entire sports world's third rails. I say this after a great deal of thought and study and investigation. We must end last to draw first to get a franchise maker. The league had to act. Their new owner was causing trouble. They fined Sterling for his comments and put him on warning. The NBA commissioner, Larry O'Brien, levied a fine of $10,000 against the owner Friday for what he called conduct prejudicial and detrimental to the NBA. At the end of his first season, the Clippers finished in last place, winning just 17 of 82 games. So the San Diego Clippers have lost again. As bad as the Clippers had been before Donald bought the team, this was a new low. But two hours north... The L.A. Lakers have won it at home. Jerry Buss and the Lakers took home another championship trophy. The crowd is chanting, we're number one. And for the second time in three years, the Los Angeles Lakers are indeed number one in the NBA. So maybe it shouldn't have been that surprising that Donald Sterling decided the grass was a lot greener up in L.A. The the league rules are very specific in that you have to have the Board of Governors' approval to move a team. You can't just pack up your team and move it to wherever you want to be. To move a team, you need permission. Donald did not have permission. The NBA quickly stepped in to prevent the move. In mid-September, a special committee of team owners met in New York where they recommended that Sterling be forced to terminate his ownership because of the aborted move to L.A. and other problems. All the way back in 1982, the NBA was on the brink of kicking Donald Sterling out. The NBA got an injunction against him, sent him back. At that time, they started proceedings to take away the franchise. Future NBA commissioner David Stern, who was then an executive vice president, tried to fix the problem by sending Alan Rothenberg to babysit Donald. He doesn't know what he's doing, and everything he's doing is wrong. The same Alan Rothenberg who represented Jack Kent Cook in the Lakers sale to bus. David Stern called uh, Donald and said, call Alan Rothenberg, bring him down there, and uh, straighten it out. Sterling said he was sorry and that he wouldn't move the team after all. That he'd even try to sell the franchise on his own. He made Alan Rothenberg president of the Clippers, which made it look like they had their act together. As a temporary fix, it worked. The owners never voted to remove him and the league backed down. But then... Al Davis, the legendary owner of the Oakland Raiders and a friend of Sterling's, pulled off his own unauthorized move to L.A. and got away with it. In sports, the Oakland Raiders late today won their antitrust suit against the NFL. That means the Raiders are now free to move to Los Angeles, though the NFL plans to appeal. A court had ruled in Davis's favor, based on a loophole in the NFL's bylaws. Alan Rothenberg noticed that the NBA bylaws had that same loophole. He went to Sterling. I said, if you want to move, this is the time. Donald jumped. And he didn't even tell his staff that they were moving. I came home and TV stations wanted to come out to the house and talk about the move. But the Clippers' general manager, Pete Babcock, didn't have anything to tell them. It was out of the blue. We, we had no idea it was coming. I'm talking about the basketball staff. Had no idea it was coming. The league fined Sterling. And Sterling responded by suing the NBA and Jerry Buss for $100 million. It was a total power move. And also a pretty crappy thing to do. 
but it worked. The Clippers were now a Los Angeles franchise. Can you tell us what was your biggest problem in San Diego? I don't think we had any problem at all in San Diego. I love San Diego. But there may not be another city in the world like Los Angeles. Owner Jerry Buss has already given his okay, taking a shot at his Beverly Hills buddy, saying, now L.A. will have one very good team and a very bad one. For Donald Sterling, the L.A. move was a chance for him to start fresh. But things did not improve. In trendy Los Angeles, two things are consistent. The Lakers win and the Clips lose. The Clippers still drop their 17th straight to start the season, matching the NBA record for such futility. Lakers, Clippers. Same town, same game, same league. But when it comes to tradition, these teams have less in common than a polo match and a soup line. Instead of becoming LA's newest celebrities, the Clippers became the butt of every joke. That's why I love going to a Clipper game, I'm serious. That's right. You sit anywhere you want to. Oh, hey, I want my tennis shoes one night. I sit down with the team. Don't laugh to throw my black ass in the game. Scored 18 points. Nine rebounds, 10 assists. I damn near had a triple-double. Then the coach get mad. Talking about, why you can't come back next week? I said, motherfucker, I got something to do next week. I grew up in Los Angeles in the 80s. And I remember watching Clipper games on TV as a kid. The games themselves weren't really anything to talk about. I mean, the team almost never won. And yet, the voice of the Clippers, Ralph Lawler, somehow made me care. Bingo! Well, that, that was my job and part of the craft. I, I just felt that was my job to find a way to keep people interested in a game that very often wasn't very interesting because we had a lot of those, a lot of years that weren't very interesting. But... There's always a story to tell. If you have a 15-win season, there's some young player or players that you've got a a story to tell about them that that humanizes them, that makes people like them, makes people, you know, root for them. Whoa, and he got fouled. How about that for the rookie? (laughs) Ralph was a master at making the Clippers likable, no matter how much they lost. Honestly, I think a lot of fans tuned in for Ralph more than the basketball. Because God knows there was no one at the actual arena, except for Penny Marshall and Billy Crystal. How did you become a Clipper fan? Um, because... When no one was a Clipper fan. They asked me to play. They said, listen, we only got, <laughs> we only got four guys tonight. Can you still dribble? At um, the sports arena, right? Yeah. I, I had Laker tickets for a while. They were, they were great. But there was, like, no challenge. <laughs> you know? And then uh, a friend of mine called and said, come on, you want to go see the Clippers play? And I said, well, all right. There was nobody there. I mean, it was a a triple-double meant there were three couples in the audience. (laughs) At every level, the Clippers screamed, not showtime. But that didn't seem to bother Donald Sterling, or at least it didn't seem to register. He got a lot of negative press, but it was attention. People knew his name, and he liked that. That's kind of all he really wanted, to be the center of attention. That's why he started throwing his parties. They were fabulous. Donald and Shelley Sterling's infamous white parties. So-called because guests were expected to come wearing white. Everybody came in white. Except for Donald, who got to wear black. It was just fabulous. It was just a big white party. The biggest white party took place at the end of summer as a way to kick off the basketball season. We'd have the players there, and they'd get up on stage, and a lot of the uh, fans and a lot of ticket holders were there. 
They go down to Malibu <laughs> in the white, show and tell. Don Casey attended the parties when he was a coach for the Clippers. Plastic cups like this size so you can't drink too much wine. Okay. Little hot dogs with sticks in them. I mean, this guy's a multimillionaire. His Malibu white party was notorious. After I went one time with my wife, uh, I, I was never allowed to go again. You know? <laughs> it wasn't quite my style anyway. So. But was so seedy and oily about it is he'd have, forgive me, but it's true, he'd have like grade C actors and actresses, the hangers-ons, the people who wanted to get back in show business. But he'd also mingle with people who were stars. Billy Crystal was one. And he hired more than just impersonators. <laughs> There were some lovely ladies walking around. Donald called them hostesses. He had them at every party he threw. He'd actually advertise for them in the paper, looking for California model types. But they were glorified call girls, there to look good and entertain the male guests. And Shelley had to smile and endure it. Another public humiliation at the hands of her husband. Maybe I've had too much wine. <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> Shelley said maybe not enough. There was always a photographer around Sterling. He had to have a private photographer for everything he did. We are fabulous. Let's give a hand to America. USA. The way he was walking around and his voice, the way he was talking, and then he was like, yes, fabulous, this and that. Quentin Richardson was drafted by the Clippers in the first round of the 2000 draft. He was from Chicago, played college ball there, and then declared for the draft after his sophomore year. He was barely 20 years old when he landed in Los Angeles and experienced his first Donald Sterling party. You know, we were there as, the, as, as his guests, as the athletes, but then you had, I guess you would say, his friends and his normal guests. It's like, you know, definitely not the same type of looking crowd as we are. And so for us, we were all kind of standing there and just checking everything out. And it's like, you know, this is for a lot of us the first time. This is the first preseason team-type owners meeting or house or any of that that we've ever been to or been involved in. So I'm just like, I'm be respectful, say what's up, be cool, but then I'm over here. We won it all, and we won it with a player for the Los Angeles Clippers. This was the best part of the party for Donald Sterling, showing off his players. Then he'd have the, the, the individual players stand up and tell why they love L.A., was one of his favorite questions. And so you'd have all these guys standing up, you know, Danny Manning and Charles Smith and uh, you know, Mark Jackson and uh, stand up and have to say why they love L.A. You see, and there's a lot of beautiful girls, aren't there? And I mean, oh, come on, please. I remember poor Wilt Chamberlain who was getting up there and he was almost at the end of his life and he looked very rail thin to me. But he says, what am, what am I doing here? I said, you, you tell me. He goes, I, I don't even know this guy. It was almost heartbreaking. I was just like, Okay, I'm ready for somebody to make the first move. So as soon as somebody else leaves, I'm gone. Like, I just don't want to be the first one to leave, but I'm out of here. He would hold your hand and he would just would not let go. It was, it was really, really uncomfortable. I mean, you go, oh my God. Uh, <laughs> you just wanted to be someplace else. The thing is, as awkward as these parties were, 
Donald never seemed happier. He got to be the belle of his own ball. And for a few hours, a captive audience had to at least pretend to think it was really cool that he owned the worst team in basketball. Because in real life, no one was fanboying over Donald Sterling. So Donald found ways to manufacture that for himself, to force the conversation to the fact that he owned the Clippers. Whoever happened to walk up, he would ask him advice about the team. He would go to the airport uh, after a game, and the baggage handlers would say, Donald Sterling came over to me and said, do you think we should trade Danny Manning? He talked to the waiter at a restaurant. He talked to the usher at the games. His famous thing was, what do you think of my coach? Just as likely he'd be listening to a cab driver as he would be to a general manager or a scout in his ball club. He would call me, sometimes late at night, you know, I'm Roy Firestone, you know everybody, you've watched all these interviews. Tell me about Larry Brown and why he should be the coach of our team. It's 10 to 11 at night. It's the owner of the Clippers. I'm not a basketball coach analyst. He goes, Roy, your opinion matters. You know, he called Billy Crystal, said, what do you think of Larry Brown? If you say I should hire him, I'm hiring him. Billy Crystal must have told him to hire Larry Brown because he did. And it was a good hire. In 1992 and again in 1993, Brown actually led the Clippers to the playoffs for the first time since before Donald owned the team. But then he resigned. Well, they have been the Buffalo Braves. They've been the San Diego Clippers, and now they are 10 years in L.A. They've had eight different coaches just in Los Angeles. Casey, year and a half. Schuler, year and a half. Calvin, fill in. Brown, year and a half. Why are they searching so long for a new coach? He's only going to be there. Year and a half. At least there's consistency in this franchise. Certainly. At every level of the organization, the Clippers were a revolving door. And if there had been an exit interview on the way out, one of the most common reasons for leaving would have been Mr. Sterling. And yes, that's what he made everyone call him. It was always Mr. Sterling. Ralph remembers assistant coach Dave Wool telling him about a coach's meeting back in the early 90s. And they're having a meeting at a, in a hotel suite. And Dave goes, well, Don, the thing we have to do is... And he said, they stopped the meeting immediately. Sterling sternly and forcefully said, it's Mr. Sterling. Donald made everyone call him Mr. Sterling, even us reporters. We used to, we used to joke we wondered if Shelley called him Mr. Sterling. But it wasn't a joke when Donald made the cover of Sports Illustrated in 2000 as the man responsible for the worst franchise in the history of sports. Sports are about winning and losing. And as an owner, you're supposed to put your team in a position to win. Because that's how the rest of the world measures your success, by how your team performs on the court. But that's not how Donald measures success. Because he was making money off the team the same way he was off its properties, just by holding on to them and investing the bare minimum. And by following that one abiding principle, location, location, location. His philosophy is, I got a team in the heart of Los Angeles. The people are coming out because they're fans of the NBA and the the visiting teams. It's true. For a long time, Clippers ads would feature the other team's players. Come see the Clippers play Michael Jordan or Charles Barkley. To Sterling, a ticket sold was a ticket sold. And if Donald could just sell tickets based on other team stars, why should he bother trying to get any of his own? Each year, uh, negotiations with our draft picks were extremely difficult. 
instead of meeting halfway or one side coming down, the other side coming up some and trying to compromise, our ownership's position was we just keep lowering the offer every week. You see, you knew Donald could always come in and undermine a deal. After his early days as Jerry Buss's assistant, Jerome Stanley went on to be a player agent. And no agent ever wanted to deal with the Clippers because of Donald. Donald was known for breaking his word in a deal. So you always had to know that when you're dealing with the Clippers, that anything can happen at any moment. Donald, with his training as a PI lawyer, most of the time you're getting your money in a settlement from the insurance company. And you never accept the first offer because it's not the real offer, and the best offer is at the courthouse steps. This negotiating tactic had made Donald hundreds of millions of dollars in his real estate business. But the courtroom steps approach doesn't work in the NBA. Because in the NBA, you're dealing with people, not buildings. Donald, what you don't realize is your buildings, they can't talk back to you. Human beings can talk back to you. Don Casey was the head coach of the Clippers for one year in 1989. That was the year the Clippers' first-round draft pick, Danny Ferry, opted to sign with an Italian team rather than play for Donald Sterling's team. The reputation of the Clippers was that bad. In three different seasons, they didn't even win 20 games. That makes them the losingest NBA team of the 80s. And working for the losingest team was about as dysfunctional as you'd expect it to be. When it gets dicey, they call it the um, bunker mentality. Every door is closed. You're walking up and down the hall, the doors are all closed. Because they, you know, they don't want to see you, or they don't want to you know, be involved, or they don't know what to say. While a good owner might take a struggling team and grab the reins, Sterling was just the opposite. The last two weeks of season, he would start disappearing. He's not around because somebody else is going to fire you. He would call me down to his office on Wilshire and Beverly Hills, and I'd go upstairs and sit in this giant room with hardly any furniture, this, this marvelous desk and a couple of expensive pieces, and you'd, you'd sit there in this parquet floor, and he would want to know everything that uh, he thought he was not privy to from the general manager or the PR people or the coach or whatever, and would ask you a bunch of questions, none of which you wanted to answer. Perhaps no move better exemplified Donald Sterling as an owner than moving to the Staples Center. The Staples Center was a wildly ambitious project in downtown Los Angeles, developed by the owners of the LA Kings hockey team. A brand new arena meant to accommodate multiple teams, able to handle both hockey and basketball in the same day. A state-of-the-art concert venue. The kind of new digs that sports franchises dream of. But... If you're trying to launch the fanciest new sports arena in L.A., you might want to be able to say that you've got L.A.'s best sports teams on board. The hurdle for the developers, though, the forum. Jerry Buss not only owned the Lakers, he also owned the building they played in. So why is he going to move the team from his building? For maybe the first time in Clippers history, they had a huge advantage by being the underdog. The Staples Center had to have an NBA team, And they had no choice but to go get the Clippers. And they negotiated with Donald. The Clippers would have been the prime tenant, and therefore with the best terms and the best choice of dates. Donald knew he had the upper hand, so he dug in his heels and waited. The 
courtroom steps. Again, negotiated, 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 couldn't do a deal. What he failed to appreciate was that he needed the developers more than they needed him. So as Donald wasted their time with never-ending negotiations, they decided... Okay, we're going to go all the way now. We're going to buy part of the Lakers and get Jerry to move the team into Staples. They made Jerry Buss a deal he could not refuse. Construction began with the Lakers as their prime tenant, and then their L.A. Kings. By the time Donald finally agreed to terms, the Clippers were third billing. Worst dates, worst locker rooms, worst everything. But even when he lost, he won. The Clippers began playing at the Staples Center in 1999, and that, along with the accompanying cable TV deal, drastically boosted the value of the team, without him having to agree to any big-money contract with star players or winning a single game. Ticket sales increased by 266%. Because it was downtown, because it was a shiny new venue that people wanted to go to, because it was the same place that the Lakers played. If you couldn't get into a Lakers game, maybe you'd check out the Clippers. And all that increased revenue went right into Donald Sterling's pocket. He'd only paid $12.5 million for the team in the first place. The profit margin was incredible. You know who he didn't share it with or who didn't profit from it? Anyone who played for him. Nobody had to bear the burden of Donald's cheapness as an owner more than his own players. Why should I spend any more money? It's crazy. Any money that I spend on these players is just giving money from my pocket to the players. We definitely noticed that stuff was different between our team and other teams. When I got to Cleveland, Cleveland had their own plane. Practice facility was in the stadium. Darius Miles was drafted in 2000, alongside his good friend Quentin Richardson. They quickly learned that there was no such luxury for Clippers players. In fact, the team didn't even have its own practice facility. They practiced at Southwest L.A. College, a junior college. You got a professional team, and they're practicing at a facility that isn't even suitable for a D1 college team. This is like a junior college. Well, not like this is a junior college that we're practicing in. They used to tell us, don't go two blocks over. That's the hood. We couldn't take showers after practice. Weight room was like, we all couldn't be in there at the same time. And it was only 12 of us on the basketball team, you know? Donald Sterling had owned the Clippers for almost 20 years at this point. He was long past the grace period of not knowing any better. He was choosing and had chosen over his entire tenure as owner, not to understand or do what would be required of a winning organization, to show no courtesy or respect to his players. He would sit there and literally uh, a play would go and he'd go, (laughs) sending these signs, all visible signs of discontent. In some games he would leave early, walk up and down, and slowly down, and it's like eight minutes to go in a game. He used to sit in his courtside seats and heckle his own players. He would harass players as they ran up and down the court. Hey, Pooh, Pooh Richardson, I'm paying you enough goddamn money while the guy's in the game. Here's the owner of the team sitting in the chair at sideline, yelling at his players on the court while the game is going on. Have you ever heard of anything like Mm -mm. that? The whole situation was one big mess that never seemed to get any better. The Clippers players did their best to steer clear of Donald. No one wanted anything to do with him. Sometimes we used to stay in the shower longer. We used to see him in there and stay in the shower longer or go in the training room or 
we kind of avoid him when we see him coming in. The locker room was Donald's favorite place to visit his players. And out of nowhere, here he comes. <laughs> he rolls in, he's got his entourage with him, like women, men. Sometimes it could be more than 10 people. He comes in and obviously, you know, when the owner comes in, everybody's going to kind of stop, turn around, give him the proper attention, you know. But it's like people literally coming in and out of the shower, towels on, have not dressed, have, you know what I'm saying, naked and stuff like that. He come in with his, his group of people and it was just like, look how beautiful my, my players is and look at how beautiful you guys is and man, you're doing so well and... I mean, aren't they beautiful to the people that he with and, you know, stuff like that. It doesn't matter what generation of Clippers players I talk to. Everyone has uncomfortable Donald Sterling locker room stories. It's like he walks in the locker room and I have a towel on. Olden Polonies put up with the same stuff when he joined the Clippers in 1991. So I'm sitting there, I'm the only guy in the locker room. And he said, hey, Alden, how you doing? He put his hand on my shoulder. He rubbed, man, look how big and strong he is. Wow, look at that. Just feel, I'm like, okay, this is getting a little awkward. <laughs> so I put my hand out, shake his hand. His friends shake their hands. How y'all doing? He goes right back. Wow, look at these muscles. I'm like, oh, hell. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? So I'm sitting there. Now I'm starting to sweat a little bit because I'm like, Nobody's in here. There's a reason why they left. And it's like, damn, he just kept looking at me. He's like, wow, look at this buck. Now, when he said that, that's when I, oh, shit. I'm like, buck? I was like, what the fuck? Black slave on the trading block. Yes. I'm telling you, that's when I was like, holy shit. That fucked me up. It was clear that Donald saw his players as his property, and always had. It's right there in the same early interview, right after he bought the team. I must say that I was rather naive when I bought the team. I was under the distinct impression that one that owns a professional franchise just shops around to uh, find which player meets his needs, and he buys them. And I find that the more desirable the player, the more difficult it is to acquire that player. And so there are several players that we wanted and were prepared to pay for, but they weren't available. Even in a league where there are owners and players are traded, Donald's views crossed a line. Most people understand that you don't buy other human beings. Donald didn't. He didn't even know enough not to say that out loud. At best, he saw his players as employees who worked for him and should be grateful that he gave them a job. At worst, he saw them as property he owned. Their value established only by what they could be sold for. But no one was going to call him out on it or make him deal with the consequences. Not at the parties. Not in the locker room. Not in the press. Not in the NBA League office. He had become so... so bloated. That's the word so bloated with being rich, being able to do what he wanted to do and have everything come back to him that he had a disconnect with what he could what he could do, what he could get away with, what's right and what was wrong and what sounded wrong. He had lost his connection because people had patronized him for so long. So he had lost 
his ability to connect with the real consequences in life. 